when you look at the Climate Change Commission's advice in that report that they released uh, back in May, they talk about the various different options and pathways that we could get to net zero. But in any of those pathways, whenever we reach that point in time when we've got our net emissions down to nothing, whether it's in 2050 or sometime after that, it will be as much because of the ability of our trees to suck carbon dioxide out of the air as it is our ability to decarbonize every other sector of our economy by that time. Welcome to the Good You Can Do podcast, where we share tips and strategies to help you reduce waste, live a healthier life, and protect the planet for future generations. My name is Andrew Duncan, and you can find out more about this project at our website, goodyoucando.com. I'm joined today by Jamie Heather from Carbon Critical. Jamie, thanks for jumping on. Thanks for having me back again, Andrew. So Jamie joined me a few months ago for an episode where we talked about uh, where you can donate to help the climate crisis. Jamie uh, and Carbon Critical have created the Net Zero Fund, which is a place where you can, uh, as a Kiwi, donate money in a tax-efficient way to help the most effective charities working to to fix the climate crisis. So uh, you can check out their website, just Google Carbon Critical. I'll also link to that Net Zero Fund in the show notes as well. And I'd really encourage anyone to check that out if they want a really quick, effective way that they can help I asked Jamie to come back on the podcast because over the last year, we've both been diving headfirst into this world of forestry and trees. And, you know, for me personally, I uh, left my day job a couple of years ago. And one of the goals was to be a stay-at-home parent largely, but, but also the secondary goal was to work uh, as much as I could on the climate crisis. And... You know, I, I look at it through a lens of like, well, what can what, what's going to make the biggest difference? Where can I point my efforts, and where can I, you know, put any investing money? Where can I put my where can I invest my time to make the most difference? And as you read about all the different solutions, you know, I keep coming back to trees and plants in general. Trees have this incredible ability to <laughs> suck a whole lot of carbon out of the air. They're an elegant solution. They're super scalable and we already have the solution. You know, we're not relying on some crazy bit of technology that hasn't been invented yet. And uh, I've really enjoyed chatting with Jamie over the last few months as we've dived both of us into this world, learning as much as possible, speaking to experts in this space. And as we've done this, it just came to me that, look, I really wanted to be able to share some of this knowledge that we've gained with other people out there who might be in a similar space who care about the problem and you know would love to know more about this space and i think you know we 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 could do a service by passing on this knowledge to them so that's where this is all coming from jamie would you mind introducing yourself and and giving people a bit of background and maybe a, a little bit of an intro into how you got into this yeah i'd love to about a year ago i started carbon critical and the, the mission for that organization was to try and find practical ways to help with the climate change problem by finding ways to reduce emissions. And the, uh, the Net Zero Fund, as you mentioned, was kind of the first initiative uh, launched in that area. But I always liked the idea of having multiple different ventures to try and tackle that problem. And in the course of that research, I came across forestry and did some research into New Zealand forestry specifically. And as you say, it looks like it's a, a a really great solution, and we should really appreciate the amazing job that trees are doing for us and their potential to be a big part 
of our uh, climate change strategy. Maybe a place to start is just speaking about that interest that we've discovered. There's a lot more talk now about the price of carbon and you know this idea of money growing on trees and forestry. And just as you speak to people in this industry, there's money just pouring into this space seemingly. Which is kind of surprising because originally people got into forestry, not for carbon emissions offsetting, but just for the timber. Traditionally, timber has always been a valuable product. And back in the 90s, especially, a lot of people in New Zealand poured into forestry, uh, especially when the timber prices was very high. And they entered into forestry with an ambition of you know, making a tidy profit, a good return on investment 25, 30 years down the line. And so that, that's been the reason traditionally for forestry expansion uh, in New Zealand. And for many of those early investors, it, it didn't quite go the way they expected. Uh, the timber price actually crashed after that 1993 peak. It's been at lower levels ever since. Nevertheless, as a benefit of all that planting, we've now got this huge carbon sink in New Zealand. And that's you know, incredibly valuable for us in terms of solving the, uh, the climate crisis or meeting our net zero obligations in New Zealand. I remember driving around the North Island with my dad. He used to drive a lot for work and I'd come on his business trips as a as a 10-year-old in the early 90s. And I remember him talking about forestry and how this was all the rage and everyone was pumping money into it. And this was the kind of the green rush. It sounds like now that uh, well, uh, certainly a lot of these forestry holdings are fairly small pockets of land, less than 100 hectares in size that are held by, you know, mum and dad investors or small syndicates of people. And a lot of them are at this point, you know, figuring out what to do because these have sort of reached a mature level, you know, they've been they've been there for nearly 30 years. So the decision time is looming of, of what they do with that, you know, do they try and get the, the trees cut down and sort of get that to the dock and try and get a decent price for it, which is quite challenging, uh, especially for some of these small holdings in the middle of nowhere, or do they keep it as permanent forests and put it into the ETS? And, you know, around half of this, half of these forests that were planted post-1989 are registered in the ETS, I believe, and, and around half of them are not. So there's a, a sort of big decision time looming for a lot of these owners as to what they do with these, with these little forests around the country. That's right. There's a great article from P.F. Olsen, uh, one of New Zealand's major forestry consultants, about this wall of wood that's been created. They estimate that of the forests that are due to come into maturity and be harvested in the next few years, 80 to 90% are small woodlots, less than 100 hectares. And they're generally in not easy to harvest areas. And it's going to be very difficult and expensive for people to harvest them. But as you say, the, uh, the government's emission trading scheme is one potential escape for them. Forests, like existing forests that we have around the country, don't generally actually sequester carbon. Would you like to talk to that a little bit, Jamie? Yeah, that was one of the most amazing and surprising things for me. Uh, if, if you read the, uh, the Climate Change Commission's uh, recent report to government, their advice to government uh, around meeting the net zero goals, there's tons of facts and information and stats in that report. Uh, but the one that really caught my eye was uh, of all the various sources of emissions that we have in New Zealand, covering you know, transport, farming, agriculture, electricity generation, and so on. All those sources of emissions add up to about 78 million, uh, let's call it 80 million tonnes of carbon dioxide a year. And, uh, and that's, what, that's New Zealand's emissions for a year. 80 million tonnes a year is essentially what we emit as a country. 
Exactly. Yeah. And, and that number has to come down to zero somehow. Um, it can get to zero either by just reducing our emissions um, in, in all those different sectors of the economy or finding ways to offset emissions. And realistically, we'll need to do both. We do need to reduce emissions, but there will be some sectors of the economy where that's very difficult or expensive to do. Uh, and for those, we'll need a way of subtracting emissions, um, removing carbon dioxide from the air. And the remarkable thing is that right now in New Zealand, the uh, existing trees and forests that we have uh, are doing that at a rate of 10 million tonnes uh, per year, which is a pretty big dent on that on that 78 uh, million tonne number. And uh, it's also really impressive, I think, if you put it into perspective by comparing it by other forms of carbon capture that the world currently has. So lots of people will have heard recently the news that a company called Climeworks uh, in Europe has just released the world's largest direct air capture uh, plant or machine. Um, that's in Iceland. And it's a record-breaking system that can suck down 4,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide each year uh, from the atmosphere. And this is actually a really big deal. The world does need these carbon capture devices. Um, this is recognised by the United Nations and many scientists so this is a big landmark on the road to global net zero emissions. But also when you compare that number, 4,000 tonnes per year, versus what our forests are doing, 10 million tonnes a year, you realise that we would have to build another 2,500 of those orca plants just to match what we're doing right now in Little New Zealand uh, with our forestry industry, which I think shows that our trees actually are kind of New Zealand's super weapon. Uh, for getting to net zero. And it naturally leads to questions of, well, you know, how much can we scale that? How long can we keep doing that? Uh, can that get us to zero by 2050 to meet our international obligations? I'll try and get back to your, your um, original point, which was this surprising revelation that this 10 million tonnes of carbon capture uh, is not coming from uh, the existing indigenous forest in New Zealand, those old forests that have been there virtually forever. They actually make up quite a large area of New Zealand's land. Uh, around about 29% of New Zealand is, is covered in indigenous forestry. But that's not sequestering anything, which really surprised me when I first heard it. I, I assumed that would be where this 10 million tonne number was coming from. And that's um, because they've reached kind of this equilibrium setting. Would that, would that be the best way to describe it? Yeah, that's right. We're, we're all taught in school that trees suck carbon dioxide out of the air, and they do. But at some point, trees mature and then they die and fall to the forest floor and they rot. And all that carbon dioxide is released back into the atmosphere. So a, a tree is only ever a temporary store of carbon dioxide. Mm. And in a forest, you have trees of every age, uh, you know, young, maturing, dying and dead. So a, a healthy, well-established forest is neither a, a source nor a sink of carbon emissions. It's just a big reservoir. A reservoir, uh, that's such, such a good word for it. That's right. And uh, for that reason, we really need to protect those uh, indigenous forests and make sure they don't uh, continue to degrade. Uh, at one point, New Zealand was covered in these forests. 80% of New Zealand was in indigenous cover, but we're now down to 29%. But the uh, to cut to the chase, the, the really surprising thing, I think, is that that 10 million tonnes is coming from our plantation forest industry. Plantations that have traditionally been grown just for their timber. Um, it turns out that those are doing all the heavy lifting in terms of carbon sequestration in New Zealand. And surprisingly, they only make up about seven or eight percent of the total land area, a relatively small chunk of New Zealand. 
and I, I can add some color to that. You know, so you referenced the the change from you know eighty percent down to around twenty nine percent of our land being covered in indigenous forests. And as people can probably you know join the dots and put two and two together, that land that was indigenous forest is now being turned into farming land. You know, so forty one percent of our entire land mass we use for farming sheep and beef and dairy cows. And so that's what that land's turned into is essentially farming land. But we could plant enough trees to offset our emissions as a country on 2.6 million hectares, which is less than a quarter of the land we currently use for farming beef and sheep. That's right. Just to put it in perspective, what we're talking about, that, that trees are, plantation forests are super powerful. Not saying that that's the ultimate answer, but just that to give people a little bit of reference as to how epically powerful trees are as a tool for sequestering carbon. That's right. And when you look at the uh, the Climate Change Commission's advice in that report that they released uh, back in May, they talk about the various different options and pathways that we could get to net zero. But in any of those pathways, uh, whenever we reach that point in time when we've, we've got our net emissions down to nothing, uh, whether it's in 2050 or sometime after that, it will be as much because of the ability of our trees to suck carbon dioxide out of the air uh, as it is our ability to decarbonize every other sector of our economy by that time. And there's also this aspect of drawdown, which is so important that you can reduce your emissions, and that's absolutely critical. But at the same time, you need to be working on solutions that draw carbon down from the air so that you know those two points can come together on the plot, but also that once you reduce your uh, emissions and once those points reach a sort of equilibrium, like once you're emitting as much as you're sequestering, you then need to carry on and then actually draw down carbon from the atmosphere because by that time, by 2050, there'll be so much carbon in the atmosphere that we actually need to bring some back down to earth to uh, further help. But it, w- it won't be a case of just getting to net zero and then, all right, we're all good now because we'll still be feeling some very serious effects of all the carbon we've pumped into the atmosphere by that stage. That's right. Net zero, uh, when we globally reach net zero, that's just the point in time that the the world temperature, the global temperature will stop rising. Uh, And it's likely that when that happens, we'll be in a world where extreme weather events and storms and disasters are a lot more common. Uh, So absolutely, uh, we will need to have ways, I I think, of removing that carbon dioxide from the air and cooling the, the planet back down into the kind of stable environments that we're used to today. When you jump into this climate crisis world, we're talking about trees now, but there are lots of different aspects that people go down. You know, there's uh, waste reduction and there's looking at the food that we eat and electric cars, for example, and and taking fossil fuels out of the equation. And I'm a big proponent of plant-based diets. And I talk about this a lot in podcasts that I do and blogs. And, you know, I don't really believe that that is a really positive step that individuals can take to make a difference. But to highlight what we're talking about, you know, there's research out there that if you were to switch from a medium to high meat-eating diet, um, you know, 50 to 100 grams of meat per day, and switch to a a plant-rich diet where you're eating a largely whole food plant-based diet, that you could save around three to four kilograms of CO2 per day. So roughly about one ton per person per year. And again, putting that into perspective, you know, a hectare of of pine trees can sequester around 30 tonnes per hectare per year. So that's why I believe in plant-rich diets as being a really important part of the solution, but that's why 
I guess I, I have a very big interest in forestry too, because it's just it's such a scalable, high leverage kind of solution. One way yeah. to look at all that is plants are the answer. Any way you look at it, that's kind of how I view it. Uh, but for you, Jamie, I know you know with carbon critical, you look at a lot of different kind of solution options. What keeps you coming back to to trees? Is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, I guess one thing is to say that just as climate change is not caused by any single thing, uh, it can't be solved by any single thing either. Quite a lot of time when people are talking about climate solutions and mitigation, a lot of people end up um, having an or conversation or what I call an or conversation. Should we do this or that or something else? Uh, And I think most experts would agree that we really need to be having and conversations and saying, let's do this and that and that. We're going to need to make big changes, big transitions in every aspect of our lifestyle, how we live, work, move, eat, shop. And so we very much need everyone to be doing whatever they can to try and make that change happen. A lot of it will need to happen um, under government regulation, legislation. Uh, The fossil fuel industry needs to be defunded. Uh, We need to stop subsidizing those types of activities and start subsidizing other things like renewable energy and so on. So there, there are a ton of ways that we need to get to net zero. We're going to need to use all of them. For me, uh, Carbon Critical, we're just a small player, a small component. And looking at these solutions, um, certain solutions will require massive amounts of uh, investment, government commitment, and so on. But then some of them are comparatively simple and straightforward, uh, especially for a small business venture to launch into. And I think trees are in that category. Trees are something that everyone understands. They've been around for millions of years. There's very low cost associated with planting them. Uh, They're very low risk. We know that if you can get a tree to grow, then it will suck down carbon for as long as that tree is standing there. And a lot of uh, scientists are telling us we need to try and stop looking at the world's problems as isolated issues. We shouldn't just be talking about climate change. We should also be talking about things like biodiversity, uh, availability and cleanliness of water, acidification of the oceans. There are lots of big issues facing the uh, the planet. And nature-based solutions tend to solve many of those at the same time versus, say, a, a carbon capture plant that's just addressing one particular issue and perhaps exaggerating issues in other places or other um, aspects. More of a band-aid approach where you're, where you're type, chucking a carbon capture machine on top of a smokestack chimney. You know, you know, yeah, Trying to right. like then take that carbon and pump it underground somewhere. I think that's a human trait as well to kind of like, no, we need to engineer our way out of this, you know, rather than just looking at, how does nature do this? Let's just help her along. Speaking of that nature aspect, it's probably a good opportunity to segue into some people might be listening to this thinking, if you want to sort of solve multiple problems and you're looking to improve biodiversity and things, then that begs the question of, you know, why not just focus on native trees? One of the things I was kind of blown away by during this process was learning about just the difference in sequestration rates. That's the amount of carbon that a native forest can draw down an indigenous forest versus exotic trees like, like pine trees. So you have this balance between you know, obviously native forests are what New Zealand was, you know, that's what it originally was. And that's what's sort of, you know, I guess you could say meant to grow here. And a, a nice, very natural indigenous forest seems like it's going to be the best thing for our biodiversity. But at the same time, if you want to have the biggest climate impact, it's hard to go past 
these exotic trees. I was speaking to one of the people at Redwoods NZ through this process, and he was saying that on a good site in the King Country in New Zealand, you can have redwoods sequestering 50 to 60 tonnes of carbon per hectare per year, whereas a good native forest, you might be getting 10 to 12 tonnes per hectare. So you're potentially talking about up to at least three times as much, but potentially five to six times as much carbon being sequestered by these exotic forests. And that really blew me away, that difference. We're starting to enter the the more contentious aspects of forestry in New Zealand. And um, I'm going to be very careful here that I don't turn this into one of those awe conversations, (laughs) because uh, there's no doubt that establishing native trees is really good for New Zealand. They have a ton of benefits, uh, especially biodiversity. That's a really big one. And that's uh, arguably as much of a threat to existence, to life on Earth as climate change is. So we should be planting and growing natives as quickly as we can. But it turns out that when you actually run the numbers, and as you said, if you look at sequestration rates, uh, certainly in the short term, pine trees, exotic trees uh, that have been introduced in New Zealand grow a lot faster than the native varieties. They typically establish themselves very quickly and radiata pine. It's a very versatile species. It will grow almost anywhere and it almost starts sequestering carbon from day one. And of course, it produces a, a, a good timber and even just the, the timber will be very valuable in helping to replace carbon heavy products like concrete and steel. So pine trees, they're, they're great at sequestering. And I haven't found any numbers anywhere that suggest that there is any longer term carbon sequestration benefit that comes from native trees. This, this is something that I've encountered a lot when talking to people. There's this perception that in the long term, native forests will sequester more carbon than exotic forests can. But there's very little evidence um, to support that that is the case. Now and then you get a stand, a dense stand of kauri trees that are very, you know, hundreds of years old. Those are fantastic. But in general, if you take all the different types of indigenous cover in New Zealand, the average sequestration rate is very much lower so I think the claim that we need natives for sequestration is, is a little bit dubious, actually. I think what's happening is we're mixing benefits or trying to incentivize planting or establishment of native forests uh, using carbon and carbon credits as the incentive, when really those forests are giving us a biodiversity advantage. That's the big thing that they do that exotic forestry doesn't. And we should be trying to incentivize that with some kind of biodiversity credit that relates to what those trees actually do for us and uh, and, and that's the important word and <laughs> in conjunction with that you know, we should be planting exotic forests to deal with carbon drawdown to deal with climate change yeah that's such a such a good point in, in terms of that biodiversity credit and yeah we certainly you and i have been on meetings with experts in the space and and there's quite different feelings and uh, approaches and and slightly just seems to depend on whether they take a really long-term approach you know the more long-term thinkers would say well if you can you should just let your land naturally regenerate into native indigenous forest not even bother planting anything just let the birds do the work if you've got a seed source nearby and you know that can sequester five tons per hectare per year and you know grow slowly over time and other people that are more short-term focused and would say no let's get some exotics into the ground and let's sequester as much as we can as quick as we can and yeah right now we've we've found a way to a very effective way to incentivize planting exotics and that's why you see this massive green rush of money into the space and because you're talking big numbers like the current 
price of carbon in the ETS is, is $64 per tonne. And so if you've got a hectare of trees sequestering 30 tonnes of carbon a year, you know, you're getting $2,000 a hectare as a return on your on your investment, which is just serious money, <laughs> but only it's looking at one, one third of that if you're, if you're natives potentially. So you can see why there's this, uh, currently the system incentivizes planting, uh, planting exotics. That's right. Uh, a lot of beef and sheep farmers are transitioning into carbon farming, planting out at least part of their land in exotics for a number of reasons. Uh, but some of the farmers I've spoken to report that their return per hectare is around about $200. And they think they can get at least double and in some cases quadruple or more by um, entering that land into the government emission trading scheme and getting paid just for growing trees uh, and that's led to this um, relatively new phenomenon, which is the idea of a, a permanent forest. So most of the New Zealand forest right now is either indigenous cover, uh, the, the old forest that's been there forever, or it's plantation exotic forestry grown for the timber. But now there's a, a new class, which is rapidly expanding, rapidly becoming a big deal, which is this so-called permanent forestry category. Uh, and the idea there is that you just plant a forest with no intention of can ever conducting any significant harvesting operation in that forest. Uh, it's just there for its environmental benefits, whether that's biodiversity or carbon sequestration. And under some recent revisions uh, to the emission trading scheme regulations, they're, they're now adding a special category for these permanent forests to encourage people to grow forestry for this purpose. And it's also led to the emergence of, um, of several companies in New Zealand that will, will help you to grow trees on your land and to um, obtain an income through the uh, emission trading scheme or voluntary carbon markets. Because something that I had to get my head around was this idea of the, the emissions trading scheme, the ETS versus the voluntary market. And I want to jump into that. But, but before we do, I, I think it's probably worth referencing this one of the problems in this space is who's going to manage this forest in 50 years' time or 80 years' time when we're no longer either able to sell the credits for, for lots of good money or when they've reached this equi equilibrium point? What, what happens to these forests like when our kids or our grandkids suddenly get <laughs> passed on this forest and, and there's, a, there's an obligation to look after it if you've been collecting carbon credits for, for decades? And this is one of the problems that we've both been interested in thinking about and trying to solve. Yeah, that is a really big issue. And I think that's one of the reasons why the uh, Climate Change Commission, they, they recognise the benefit of forestry, uh, but they've also warned that we can't rely on tree planting to get ourselves out of the climate crisis. I was at the uh, carbon forestry event uh, in Rotorua earlier this year, and I heard Dr. Rod Carr from the uh, Climate Change Commission talking, and he said that trees provide a, a one-time benefit uh, and we can't plant our way out of climate change. We, we have to find ways to reduce our emissions um, and not just assume that we can always offset them by planting another tree. Uh, and that's something that perhaps, again, people might not be um, as aware of. But the, the reason they say that is in order to keep sequestering carbon uh, from the atmosphere using forestry, you have to keep finding new patches of bare land to plant with a forest over and over and over again and keep doing that to keep sequestering. And that was a little bit surprising for me. I assumed that trees just were always sucking down carbon dioxide just by being there. Um, as we said earlier in, the, in the, this chat, um, that's not the case. Mature forests are just reservoirs, but they're not carbon sinks. And I, I think the, uh, the government is wary about this idea that we'll just keep 
converting big chunks of New Zealand into forestry, especially because once that's happened, as Dr. Rodkar pointed out, once you've um, you've done that and you've converted land into forestry, uh, it's very difficult to ever go back from that. You, if you do go back, if you clear that land, then all that carbon is released back into the atmosphere and you've lost that benefit. Uh, and so that, that is a potential problem with relying too much on forestry. On That's the flip so side, <laughs> um, the, the, uh, the Climate Change Commission are um, recommending that we, uh, we aim to plant out about 30,000 hectares of, uh, of land each year um, with forestry, primarily exotic forestry. And that will um, give us a, a, a real carbon sequestration benefit. We will go on sucking carbon out of the air, uh, reducing emissions, our net emissions, if we do that. And at, at that rate of planting at 30,000 hectares a year, we could go on doing that for a century. And that would come to 3 million hectares of land, additional land planted out, which would be, as you said, only a quarter or a third, say about a third of the land that we currently have in beef and sheep farming. So in the scheme of things, we do have a lot of uh, space in New Zealand and these trees are so effective at sucking down carbon uh, that, that we can go on using that marginal land for this purpose. Um, a lot of that beef and sheep land is actually very marginal. A recent ETS expert told me that in some cases, land that should never have really been cleared for farming, that original indigenous forest has been cleared with very detrimental effects on the environment in terms of uh, runoff of soil um, landslides and so on. Um, it, it should never have been deforested. Uh, and it's estimated that between one and two million um, hectares in New Zealand really should be back in some kind of forest tree cover. So we can take the, the very least productive, the worst, you know, most marginal farmland that we have that's currently covering a third of New Zealand. If we put a fraction of that into forestry, then we can go on sequestering carbon for at least another century. It's really good to talk that through, this whole idea, because I, I see the kind of clickbait art articles that come out of like, New Zealand can't plan its way out of, you know, the problem. And that's a really kind of, I guess, effective news headline at garnering attention. But as a person who cares about the crisis, I see that. And I'm like, oh, that's just negativity. Like, that doesn't help me as a person who cares wanting to make a difference. And I couldn't often get my head around, what do they mean by New Zealand can't plan its way out? Like, surely we could just plant a crap ton of trees. but what you've just described there very nicely uh, explains that like trees are essentially incredibly effective and we can do a heck of a lot of difference by planting the marginal land that we currently use for farming um, to, to be permanent forests. We that's can't, right. we can't entirely solve the problem just by planting trees, but that's no one's real intention. You know, that's kind of a, a stupid angle to take in my views, but, but it also explains why, combining planting trees why it's also important to do these other things like to decarbonize the economy and to you know reduce emissions whether that's on a macro sense or whether it's just on an individual sense in terms of changing the way you get to work or the way you know the food that you eat um, or the way that you uh, run your house in terms of how efficient your your property is and just look down to the tiniest things like insulation and things as well so um, and solar yeah. panels so I think that that nicely explains, why we can't plant trees <laughs> to, to solve the problem, but why there's no one thing. It's an and. It's always an and, 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 and these things all go hand in glove. 
Exactly. Uh, we're really lucky in New Zealand that we have such a, uh, a, a powerful natural resource that, that these trees grow the way they do here. Um, the uh, the Pinus radiata, or pine trees that are used predominantly in New Zealand, uh, they, they come from California, uh, but they grow here many times faster than, than they do in their native country due to the, uh, you know, the kind of nice temperate conditions we have in New Zealand, the year-round rainfall. And so that they grow here well, like weeds. Um, they, they grow here faster than they do in most other parts of the planet. And unfortunately, many countries will not have this same option to plant trees and negate emissions, at least not to the same scale that New Zealand does. Um, and this ability we have due to this wonderful pine tree, which I'm a huge fan of, I, I think we should be really grateful in New Zealand that we have these um, pine trees that can do this for us, because it is going to make that transition to net zero so much more pleasant for everybody. Um, it, it will make it easier. It gives us a bit of breathing room. We should be really grateful we've got these pine trees because the alternative could be, okay, let's not plant pine trees, but everyone has to stop driving um, and everyone has to stop eating meat. Yes. You know, the, the kind of alternatives are actually quite, quite difficult for most people to even contemplate. And um, I think when people are making arguments against pine trees, it needs to be a balanced argument that weighs up the implications of planting monocultures on one side versus the implications of climate catastrophe and extreme weather events and disasters on the other side. And then I think when you view it through that lens, um, it does help to bring things into perspective a little. It's such a human trait to want to uh, go down this road of reductionism to distill everything down to a binary black and white argument. I know I've been guilty of that through my life and uh, it's a real trap i mean i think generally simplifying things down to what really matters is a really valuable framework to run anything through but when you're talking about the climate crisis it just doesn't really work and it just creates almost like silos almost like spaces where people find a position and and as humans we want to hang on to that position for dear life that this is not about kind of really simple black and white solutions. So like you say, I, th I would love if all the conversations were presented with balanced arguments. And, and on that note, before we move on to kind of the ETS and voluntary carbon market, we should just touch on that there are people, you know, working on these hybrid models of permanent exotic and native forests. You know, organisations like ECOS is one example where they are working on solutions uh, where exotic forests and the economic returns that come with that can be used to fund native planting and and that slowly there's sustainable ways to be able to start off with you know maybe an 80 20 mix of exotics to natives and then move that up over time so that you're going to a more indigenous forest type space how have you felt about what you've seen in that hybrid is that's a really fascinating area and i've had a few conversations with uh, dr adam forbes um, from the university of canterbury who did some research pioneering that idea of can we take an established exotic forest and transition it into a, a native landscape an indigenous forest and uh, and he proved that it was possible but there are also substantial costs in making that happen um, it's not easy and it's a big commitment and uh, i i think some of the the existing initiatives that are being adopted, um, this this idea of you know plant some exotics and get the quick se carbon sequestration benefits from exotics, and then we'll transition over a 50-year period into a you know, lovely self-sustaining indigenous forest. 
Um, on paper, it sounds fantastic, but there, there's some big question marks, I think, about you know, whether that's really economically sustainable. Um, if you plant out a patch of land with pine, then sure, that, that, those pine trees will grow really quickly and uh, you'll be able to get carbon credits for each new ton of, of carbon or, or ton of tree on your land. Um, but when you start clearing some of those trees to make way for native plants, then you're probably going to undertake a drop in carbon. And that implies that you might actually owe the government uh, carbon credits. You might have to surrender, buy and surrender carbon credits at whatever point price point they are um, at that point in time. This is getting a little bit technical, um, so I, I won't go too much further, but uh, I think it, there are some dubious um, economies there. And the last time I, I spoke to Dr. Adam Forbes, um, he told me he was a bit worried about the way those schemes are being implemented um, and whether they'll work out or not. One of the surprising things I found out about natives um, in the course of this research is they're very difficult to plant, very difficult to establish. Uh, the reason being that they, they tend to take a long time to get going. Uh, so you might have to look after your trees and your, your saplings for maybe 10 years or perhaps even longer after you planted them before they uh, become established enough that you can kind of walk away and trust that they'll carry on growing and be okay. And many people who, who have tried planting uh, large areas in, in natives report that the costs of doing so are about $20,000, maybe up to $30,000 per hectare, which is extremely pricey um, compared to the, the cost of, uh, of planting pine, mm -hmm. which is normally about $1,500 per hectare, give or take. So natives are very expensive to plant. They take a long time to get going. They don't sequester much carbon in that, that, that horizon. And uh, even in the long term, they, you know, they don't seem to sequester as much carbon as exotic forests can. And uh, I think because of this, a lot of people are moving away from the idea of planting natives um, towards the idea of, as you said, just let areas of land regenerate in native bush. Um, which is a, a much more realistic way, I think, of hitting kind of landscape style changes um, in, in New Zealand. It's probably a good chance to play devil's advocate and talk about the perceived risks with pine forests. They perceive to come with a lot of environmental problems like increased fire risks and acidifying soils and interfering with waterways. What has your research uh, shown you about the, the problems that come with exotics? Yeah, good point. And uh, those are the kind of concerns that you encounter a lot when you we, you talk to rural folk about about pine trees. And uh, some of them are grounded on you know quite reasonable concerns, um, things like the risk of clear felling to causing erosion, wash off of of slash into rivers and so on. But a, a lot of the concerns, I think, they're really exaggerated. Monoculture forests are not as good as a native forest for biodiversity. There's no doubt about that. But as many environmentalists have pointed out, you do still get life in monoculture trees. There, there are still plenty of animals that will make that their home. And a forest of any form has many forms of, uh, of benefit um, to the countryside. That includes holding the soil together, reducing erosion, uh, filtering surface water, removing contaminants from surface water, whatever biodiversity benefit you get. Um, there, there are lots of things that trees do, forests do, that are, are good for the environment. And that's true even for exotic monoculture uh, forests. And again, it's come back to that or versus an and conversation. No one's trying to advocate that a, a monoculture forest can do all the things that a, a native forest can. 
but they, we don't have to choose between the two. There, there's enough land in New Zealand to, to, you know, to do both things. And as long as the risks associated with production forestry are, are mitigated and managed properly, then there's no reason that it should cause any problems. What about like the societal issues in terms of, you know, I know that's a big fear for farmers too, and in terms of taking away jobs. I think it, it is complicated. A lot of people don't like pine forests because there's a perception that they take away jobs. The research in that area suggests that actually forestry employs about as many people per hectare as, as farming. Uh, it's just that in a farm, you have the same people on the same bit of land year in, year out. Whereas forestry, the, the workforce tends to move to wherever the next harvesting operation is. So you have a lot of people working for maybe six months or so at one site, and then they move to another site. And the rest of the time, you know, that forest might just be growing for um, you know, 27 years or so with very little activity apparent inside it. So there's a, a perception uh, that forestry doesn't employ as many people. But my recent experience of trying to engage forestry consultants has been that they're very busy. And uh, some of them have told me they, they just have zero capacity for two years out into the future. Uh, and I think probably the biggest problem facing the forestry uh, industry right now is just that there aren't enough people working in it. Um, they, they can't get the people they need. So the, the job prospects for anyone that's looking for a, a career with future um, security, forestry, <laughs> is, there's a hell of a lot of demand there and there will be for the foreseeable future. Um, it will employ a lot of people, but perhaps not in the ways that people have traditionally been employed uh, in the countryside. But in terms of the planting trees and of the, like you say, the weed control and pest control and just soil management to improve the growth rates, and this is something that we'll get into, but if you have a forest plantation that's over 100 hectares, you know, you can go for this field management approach where essentially your, your site gets, gets measured and uh, to decide how much carbon you're sequestering. So if you can find a way to grow trees faster on your land, you can earn a lot more from it. So I personally believe there's going to be a, a heck of a lot of need for smart people to go in and, and tell you whether you, you know, what you can do to improve your growth rates, whether that's, you know, doing more composting or what you grow around those trees or how where you grow them and how you grow them. So not just in terms of the logging sort of side of it, but there's, yeah, there's a cool space to get into if you wanted some long-term job security. I totally agree. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of high-tech um, stuff going into land optimization, um, resource optimization at, at the moment. And uh, I agree that will continue to grow. There are also a lot of as yet unexploited opportunities, I think, because um, one of those byproducts of forestry is slash. Uh, and at the moment, it's a problem. It sits on the forest floor and sometimes it washes into a river, which is a problem. But a lot of people are saying, well, maybe we could use that for something more beneficial to society. New areas like say biochar, biofuels, biopolymers. Um, it's now possible to make plant-based plastics. There's going to be a lot of new industry that emerges out, out of those kind of opportunities. There's this big world of kind of stored carbon too, isn't there? So we're going to jump in. This is probably a good opportunity to segue into the ETS, but you've uh, currently, once the tree's cut down, the ETS just sees it as being cut down and, and, and that carbon is, is gone. But there's potential that in the future that, could incorporate solutions where, you know, if the pine tree is cut down and turned into a 
housing project, um, then essentially that you know most of that carbon is still stored. It's just in the form of a of a building. So yeah, if we think of solutions in New Zealand to use some of this wood rather than taking it to a port and shipping it off to China or wherever, then th- there's opportunities there too for clever uses like the biochar one uh, and and storing that wood in, in more fixed use projects. That's right. There's a uh, some speculation at the moment saying that the government are in the process or, or considering revising the ETS regulations to provide provisions for um, for harvested wood products. As you say, timber um, it can last for centuries or even millennia um, when it's used in the right way in buildings, and by doing that, it is effectively sequestering carbon for a, a very long period of time. Uh, so I think those regulations will come, and we'll we'll also see timber used more and more often in construction and especially uh, advanced timber composites that can start to replace concrete and steel um, which are actually really bad for the environment they have really massive carbon footprints 12 percent of all of humankind's emissions are coming just from making steel and concrete and in some cases wood is the most uh, viable alternative um, to building with those materials so the outlook for wood is fantastic i think if you're looking for a material that has uh, sustainable, you know, long-term prospects for the uh, the 21st century, then timber's a, <laughs> a good way to go. Absolutely. So we should explain, since we've referenced it a few times, but for people like where I was even six to nine months ago, just getting their heads around the ETS and the voluntary carbon market, it's it's a complex system. But essentially, one of the best things that the world can do to work on the climate crisis to try and solve it is to put a price on carbon. It might sound like a really basic thing, but we're pretty slow to the eight ball in, in this space. And, and New Zealand, in fact, is quite ahead of the curve in terms of taking that step to put a price on carbon, to set a carbon budget for the country and then to put a price on each tonne of CO2 equivalent emissions. And New Zealand produces around 80 million tonnes of emissions a year. Uh, right now, we have a, a essentially a price on carbon of a spot price, I think, is $64.50 uh, today. So what New Zealand does then is, uh, and feel free to correct me on any of this, um, is we say to a whole bunch of emitters uh, that they have to buy the carbon credits to to continue emitting at the rate they are emitting. And we and we put a price on carbon to essentially incentivize all these emitting operations to decrease their emissions. So <laughs> that's that's kind of where it comes from is if you put a price on it, you provide an incentive to decrease emissions. Not only that, right. you provide a way for people that can sequester carbon to earn a benefit from doing that. So if that's why we talk about how if you're forest, uh, if you register that in the emissions trading scheme, which is the government-run system, you can earn uh, carbon credits for proving that you've sequestered a certain amount of carbon, and you can cash those credits in at a current rate of $64 per per credit, and, and one credit is one tonne. Uh, have I done a decent job of explaining that in a hopefully reasonably simple way? <laughs> Yeah, I think so. Um, to be honest, it's a very confusing scheme, and I, I don't feel like I had a, have a great grasp of it even now after work, you know, trying to understand it for the last uh, year or so. <laughs> but, uh, 
But the, so if you're um, listening and you're so not sure, don't worry. We're in the we're in the same boat. <laughs> I, I should just add, sorry to jump in, Jamie. That uh, currently agriculture in New Zealand is excluded from the emissions trading scheme, but there is some talk that it may be brought in. So there's a lot of nuance to this, and not everybody has to get carbon credits who emits, uh, you know, who have, right. who have emissions. So, but certainly the big polluters um, outside of uh, agriculture, they are obliged to um, to do something about the or reduce the emissions they reduce the emissions they create or pay the price. Yeah, and so so it took me a little while to get my head around the voluntary carbon market, but that is where imagine a company that didn't have to operate in the ETS wanted to present very green credentials. They might say. Hey, it could be, and this could be any kind of company. Um, they might say, "Hey, we we roughly estimate that we you know produce this amount of emissions per year. We want to offset that. We want to be able to tell our consumers that we care about the environment, so they can go to this other. They could, I guess, buy credits on the ETS if they wanted to, but they could also go to this voluntary carbon market, pay an organisation to plant trees on their behalf." And, and so there's this whole kind of unregulated voluntary market that operates outside the ETS, which a lot of companies will engage with. And the price of carbon in those markets can fluctuate wildly and can be quite different from the price in the ETS. And that's because some people will put more value on projects where it is native indigenous forest that's being planted on their behalf or other kinds of solutions that uh, have, it's almost like the biodiversity credit gets kind of built into the price in those, in those schemes, which is, which is really cool. Yeah, it's a, a really fast moving area. Uh, lots of people are, are moving into that. There are lots of people around the world and in New Zealand that will claim they can sell you a carbon credit, that they can sell you their ability to remove a ton of carbon from the air. And uh, lots of them are doing it, as you say, using uh, more appealing ways of um, removing carbon with additional benefits like biodiversity. Uh, and that does appeal to companies. Um, if you're trying to make a big, big splash about your business going net zero, you know, you've made this commitment to offset your emissions, then if you can um, invest in something that is not just a piece of paper, but maybe, you know, comes with some photos of school kids planting trees um, or some other credentials that create a good social story. That's kind of the, the priority for a, a lot of companies that are making these net zero commitments. And lots of companies are. Of the 500 uh, largest companies in the world, over half of them now have 2050 net zero commitments. And uh, it, the voluntary carbon market is expected to just explode um, in the coming decades. But yes, it, coming back to the prices, there is a big diversity of, of prices in the voluntary carbon market. Some people claim they can offset a ton of carbon for very little. Some people charge you know, a lot more than the, uh, the ETS does, um, anywhere between $100 up to maybe $2,000 per ton. And, uh, and so there is a widespread and, and some companies will pay a lot more to have something that you know, ha has other credentials or is a more convincing solution for, for keeping carbon out of the air for a long time. But overall, that whole market is still quite unregulated. But there are some big platforms um, emerging. Uh, one is called Puro.Earth, I think, is one of the biggest in this area. Uh, and they're, they're trying to create a, a, a platform with forms of validation that provide some confidence that the, the suppliers of carbon credits are doing it in a robust and meaningful way. Now, I was interested in this because 
you were looking at this as an investor or an entrepreneur and you were trying to look at solutions which sequestered carbon, you're not fixed to operating inside the ETS. There's not one price for carbon that you have to operate with. You can choose to operate in that ETS if you wanted to go and buy a couple of hundred hectares of farmland and plant some trees or as little as 10 hectares and plant some trees on it. Or you could build a kind of a story, a vision around what you're doing, and maybe that's more native trees or maybe that's a um, food waste diversion. And, and, and as long as you can find a good way to measure the impact you're having, there's this whole other voluntary market that you can um, decide to access and use. Uh, so that was a bit of a bit of an eye-opener for me and, and kind of seems it makes makes real sense now, but it took it actually did take a little while to, to get my head around the fact that you can have two entirely different markets for the same thing, one very regulated and very with a very fixed set of rules and guidelines and one that's the the complete Wild West. Exactly. And uh, a lot of people are moving into, well, maybe depending on who you are, but you might call it investment or speculation in these carbon markets. It's estimated that about a quarter of all the New Zealand units in the ETS are held by people that have just bought them with the expectation that the carbon price will increase over time and they'll sell them down the line uh, for a nice profit, which is a huge number. Yeah, I really wanted to reference that. There's, there's one called the Carbon Fund on the NZX. Uh, this is a fund which allows you to essentially yeah, speculate on the price of carbon. It's a stock market ticker is CO2, which I just love. Yeah. <laughs> Initially, I kind of saw that when I first came across the carbon fund, I thought, oh, yeah, cool. And then as I thought about it, it's like, actually, that seems like an incredibly effective way as an investor to help make a difference in the climate crisis. So my reasoning being, okay, if I've got some money to spend or invest, I could go and buy some farmland and plant some trees, or I can go and buy units in the carbon fund, essentially buying carbon credits. New Zealand has this set pool of, you know, this budget of credits. So if I take credits off that market by essentially owning them myself through this carbon fund, that's less credits that are available for emitters to buy or, you know, pushes the price up for the ones that are left. So that should essentially cause a reduction in emissions or at least improve the incentive to reduce emissions for for our biggest emitters. And you yeah. can invest in this option. The cool thing about this is it's accessible. So you can invest, you know, through things like sharesies and, and and the like. You know, you can be involved in that for as little as, you know, as little money as you want or as much as you want. So as I've thought more about it, that seems like a a very, very cool way to have an impact if you're an investor and you want to dabble in something, but there are risks with it as well, you know, like uh, right. historically the price of carbon has fluctuated a lot. So please, I'm not a financial advisor. Don't take my advice on this. But <laughs> um, are, you, are you drawn to that idea as an investor to look at things like the carbon fund? And, and what do you think of that idea of 25% of the credits being held by speculators? I think you're right that if those 25% of speculators weren't there, then the carbon price would almost certainly be lower than it is today. And it would yes. be cheaper for companies to uh, to pollute. And maybe they wouldn't be having as many boardroom discussions about how they get next year's budget down um, consequently. So I, I, I think it, it seems to me like that mechanism is probably good for the planet. It's probably doing the right thing. I personally think the price of carbon, like like many people in the in the industry, is very low. When you start to look at the ways of uh, of capturing carbon from the air, it's actually 
quite expensive, um, not just capturing it, but storing it away. The Orca plant in Iceland that I mentioned earlier, that direct air capture facility, uh, if you go onto the Climeworks website, you can buy credits from them. You can pay them to remove carbon from the air for you, and they'll charge you a euro a kilogram, uh, which works out at about 1800 New Zealand dollars per ton. $1,800 per ton to do it in that, you know, in that largest, most commercial, most scalable system that we have right now versus a price of $60, $64 per ton right now in the New Zealand emission trading scheme. I'm sure the, uh, the owners of, the, of Climeworks would be quick to point out that that price will come down as it scales. But for those guys, the, the kind of holy grail for that industry is to reach $100 US per ton of carbon dioxide, which is around about $140. Uh, New Zealand dollars. So I think we could assume that that's a you know a realistic minimum really for where the carbon price will end up, which makes it a fantastic um, purchase. I think in a in a world that is awash with overvalued assets and shares and stocks and funds, um, the fact you can get what appears to be outrageously discounted you know carbon units um, on the market right now, I, I think it's a a good investment with one really big caveat, which you mentioned. Uh, which is that ultimately what happens with the NZU, the, the carbon price in New Zealand, is very subject to government legislation. And previously, the uh, uh, the national government, they opted to flood the New Zealand market with very cheap, illegitimate, unreliable carbon credits um, a few years back. And it, it caused a complete crash in the uh, the carbon price. It, it went down to, I think, less than $2 a tonne. And many investors and many people that were trying to invest in doing the right thing with, with carbon forestry were really burned by that and are still very cautious about getting burned again, which is perhaps why only 50% of New Zealand's forests are currently registered in the ETS, as you mentioned earlier. So for anyone investing in this area needs to be aware that it's possible national government will get in again and they'll do something really stupid again to favor big industry and big polluters and all these people that entered into here will will lose their their shirts yeah yes my it's very very risk and you know my hope is that the the social backlash to that in, in this world we are now where everyone's you know getting more and more educated of the of the risk and the problem that that would be yeah the social backlash would be pretty severe but you just never know um you know if you look at the track you know the plot of the the carbon spot price you know with the ETS in New Zealand over the last few years like it's, it's changed so much you know it was nearly twenty dollars only a couple of years ago and now it's at sixty four dollars so you're talking some some massive, massive changes, but there's very, like you say, there's very, very good reason to believe that that price should improve and increase over time. New Zealand has a target for it to be, you know, over a hundred dollars per ton, I believe, in the next five years. Um, but I'll try and provide yeah. any links to the show notes for any any information that we're referencing there. But it's, um, you know, it, initially when I saw that, like things like that carbon fund, I thought, oh, that's just people speculating, trying to make money. It's just a but, but I, you know, when I thought about it and reflected, I was like, no, actually, that could be a super powerful way to invest and potentially get a really exceptional return and, and also do some, some real good at the same time. And as soon as you put a price on things, you start to, this is an example of capitalism for all its faults potentially working. <laughs> and it's something that you and I are both passionate about is finding you know, we, we both believe there are ways to to solve the climate crisis that, that are financially 
uh, advantageous. Uh, really believe in that. It's not about um, ripping everything down and ripping it apart. You know, there's there's some simple things we can do um, that make a difference and that are still sustainable and profitable at the same time. Absolutely. I think it's a huge area. Uh, I think as we've discussed before, um, there will be winners and losers um, in this transition to the, the new economy, an economy that's cleaner based on renewable technology and low emissions. There will be people that cling to the old ways of doing things, fossil fuels. Um, I think they're going to get burned in the long run. And people that are, are investing in these new areas will, will do uh, much better, I think. For long-term return on investment, you need to be thinking about in terms of sustainability and sustainable investments and, and green investments and new economies, new technologies, new ways of doing things. We've, we've talked about investing in carbon. One, conversa- one I guess, conversation I wanted to have is uh, just because it was important to me and it might be important to other people listening was you know, whether investing in farmland to plant trees is something worth considering. And I know you and I have spoken with a number of investors that we know who are going down that road. And naturally, for me, as someone who has uh, been involved in kind of the property investment space, I am naturally drawn to the idea of, well, I, I would want to run out and buy some land and plant some trees. And, and, you know, that seems like a far more productive investment than owning residential rental property, for instance. So because that was my kind of initial train of thought, you know, it's, it's probably worth talking to. Like, And just to give people a really macro overhead view from the research I've done, there's two key aspects to know. Uh, If you're going to operate inside the ETS, then they have standard growth tables. So if your forest uh, is going to be smaller than 100 hectares, then the rate of growth which you can claim in terms of you know, earning carbon credits is fixed and prescribed. And I'll put a link to these in the show notes, but they're the rates of sequestration of how much carbon these trees suck in is different for um, indigenous forests, for pine forests, for redwoods. So it's what you can earn is is prescribed and set. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, uh, obviously you've got to manage that forest and make sure it grows and make sure, you know, do weed control and pest control, but you can't have much influence over the growth rates. Whereas if you have a, uh, a farm which is over 100 hectares, then you can go for this field management approach or you have to use this field management approach where you pay someone to come and essentially measure the site periodically and you can claim the amount of uh, credits based on the amount of carbon that you're actually sequestering. So that's the first thing to think about. If you wanted to, say, plant uh, redwoods, you might want to make sure your site was over 100 hectares. You might want to do some research around finding which sites in New Zealand are going to be best for growing that type of tree and to really maximise your return. But perfectly fine to buy a smaller lot and look into doing that. And depending on what price you pay per hectare, as we've talked about, you can get a pretty good return on your investment from planting trees. Uh, but even with pine trees, you're talking about, you know, kind of eight to 10 years before you start to get some, some pretty serious kind of returns in terms of carbon credit income coming in. And you've got pretty serious setup costs. You know, you're looking at at least three to four grand per hectare and probably more for any operation which is converting from bare land to trees. And so the, the costs involved are you know, putting roads and tracks and buying the trees in the first place, playing, paying for um, you know, weed control and pest management and 
paying for more weed control one year into the process. And then you've got pruning costs, which can be super expensive, another sort of three grand per hectare down the track if you want to maintain the ability to use that land as kind of, um, you know, for wood uh, once it reaches maturity. So it's, as you can imagine, quite a cost-intensive upfront uh, investment, but can have some pretty serious payoffs over time provided the carbon price, the carbon price doesn't fall through the floor and potentially huge if that carbon price keeps increasing. Like you, you could be talking a 30, 40% return on your, on your property investment in the years to come if the carbon price keeps rising. So it, it could provide far better returns than investing in residential or commercial or pretty much any kind of other property investment. Um, so with yeah. that all being said, I just thought that's worth referencing. It might not, it's probably not worth getting too stuck in the weeds, but as someone who has thought about it from that point of view myself, um, by all means, yeah. I'd encourage people to do more research and, and look into it. One other thing I'd say, you also want to get in there pretty early. Like I was speaking to a guy from NZ Redwoods, which is the main provider of redwood like saplings for people who want to start a, a redwood forest. And basically they've sold out all their trees for next year. And you might even struggle for the following year. Like there's so much interest and money pouring into the space that uh, the time scales are long and, uh, you know, just getting the trees to plant is, is not inherently that simple. <laughs> That's right. Those practical concerns, I think, are going to be a, a big factor in how quickly we can scale forestry or, or it does scale. Um, but yeah, the, the cost of um, getting contractors that, that can do the work you need, uh, the availability of land in New Zealand is lower now than it has been for you know, over recent years. And uh, yeah, the saplings, not just uh, redwood, but radiata, a lot of the nurseries I've looked at recently are out of stock. They have signs on their website saying not this year, maybe next year. Um, there's huge demand and just people pouring in um, to this, you know, the, the, this form of investment. So there's a bit of competition there. And I think probably the government's a little bit nervous about this, you know, second green rush. Um, we had one back in the uh, in the 90s and it looks like it's happening again now for different reasons. Um, but hopefully this is good news from a carbon capture, carbon sequestration perspective. Good news for the climate. I'd add to my comment on the investment side that for me, I've also come to this realisation that my mental approach of learning about forestry and then saying, I want to go buy some land and plant some trees. It's quite a minimalist mindset that I have to shape as a person who wants to see more climate action. It's a very personal approach to say, oh, I want to spend my money to do to make a difference. But when you take a step back and look at it, there's a as we're talking about, there's a crap ton of money pouring into the space. I don't think what we need is more and more people jumping in this green rush necessarily that that sort of space already seems to be filled what i'm really interested in is helping jamie find solutions to problems that haven't been solved yet and, and that's what i'd encourage if there are entrepreneurs or, or investors listening that problem is already being solved let's find other ones other other spaces in this area that that need clever thinking and clever strategies and for anyone who's a keen investor, there are potentially more accessible ways to get involved with this, like the, the carbon fund and, and other options there. So uh, I personally have to shake my kind of, it's almost a small-minded mindset. Like it comes from, one, from wanting to help, but it's also a limiting mindset to think, I want to go out and buy some land and plant some trees. And I think you can, we can be a lot more creative than that about 
how we go about it. There's already plenty of rich people in the world that want to come and buy all our land and plant it full of pine trees. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Well, we should make the next podcast crazy ideas for saving the planet and start to tell people what they are. (laughs) That sounds cool, man. That is us. That is us. (laughs) Jamie, uh, I so appreciate you being so giving of your time and, and uh, willing, being willing to share this incredible amount of knowledge that you've built up. I mean, I've been following you on this forestry deep dive journey for the last few months, having periodic chats about it and your ability to sequester information <laughs> on a grand <laughs> scale is, and, and just to do the amount of research that you've done, the amount of reading that you've put into this. I, I, I commend you for it, and uh, I have massive amount of respect for that. So, thank you oh, for thanks, all the Andrew. hard work that you're doing, and I'm really excited to see what uh, crazy, what crazy solutions and schemes come out of this in the in the months ahead. Well, it's really great just to have the opportunity to try and share some of that those findings with people that you know that might be interested. So, um, thanks very much. It's been awesome to be back talking to you. Awesome, thanks, Jamie. And uh, I'd also reference uh, for a super accessible, easy way to make a difference uh, in the climate crisis. We're talking about all these big solutions. We're talking about trees. We're talking about forests. Go and check out the Net Zero Fund, which Jamie has set up through Carbon Critical. Uh, It supports the very best uh, climate crisis charities around the world. And with many of these charities, you know, they claim to be able to avert uh, a ton of emissions for as little as one US dollar per ton. So we're talking about (laughs) these schemes, which cost a lot of money and can make returns. You can avert a ton of emissions for one US dollar. You know, you can make a massive difference for a very small amount of money. Um, all the money donated to the Net Zero Fund gets passed on to the charities. Um, none of the, 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 you know, Carbon Critical don't take any anything out of your donation. It all gets passed on and you're able to claim a tax credit on any donations you make. So I just encourage people, we're talking about all these big ideas, but there's a really simple one you can do, which is to, if you are into donating money, if you do have the ability to do that, go and check out the Carbon Critical website in the Net Zero Fund. 